All right, so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 tonight. I am super thankful for Mark stepping in, uh, covering for me. I know he, I called him right away and says, hey, nice job. And he's like, I don't know if he liked that so much or not. But I know that, uh, that prophecy is challenging sometimes. But Daniel chapter 7, he did a great job. Daniel chapter 7 is the last part of Daniel written in Aramaic. So you have Daniel that's it's written in, you have three different languages present. You have Hebrew, Aramaic, and I want to say Greek or Persian, but there's only a couple of words of those. So when we look at it, there's a reason why the author does that, right? Like if you write writing a book and you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the first chapter in English and then the next five chapters in German, and then I'm going to go back to English. You did that for a reason, right? Maybe because the, the message, the people you're, you're writing to, you want to highlight, hey, this section right here deals with you guys. So what Daniel does in doing that, in writing that center section uh, in Aramaic, is he's announcing to the Gentile world, hey, this section focuses on you. So we see this division. That division is God calling the nations, the world that's in rebellion against God, his own people in exile there in their midst, and he's telling them the end from the beginning so that they'll know there is a God in heaven, and he is ultimately in control. Now, maybe that doesn't always, that always gives me comfort. And the reason that always gives me comfort, and it's an important thing for us to recognize, you can't mess up what God's trying to do. You are not that powerful, just so you know. You don't got that kind of juice. So God is going to accomplish his purposes. And he's announcing to the world, he announced to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Hey, your pride is a problem. You need to come and walk in humility. And in humility, you can know me. I'll honor you. I'm the one who raises up kings and brings down kingdoms. He told Belshazzar the same thing. In fact, Daniel said to Belshazzar, you remember in chapter 5, you should have learned this lesson. You were there when when your grandfather went through this stuff. You've heard these stories. And... He's going to deliver the same message we saw in Daniel chapter 6, right? With Daniel in the lion's den. In Daniel chapter 7, you get a mirror image of the dream Nebuchadnezzar had of the statues. Remember the dream of the statue? And all the kingdoms of men are doing what? Here's what you need to know. One, all the kingdoms of men are passing. Is there an eternal kingdom of man? Never. Is there an eternal kingdom of God? Yes. Is the, every kingdom moving from one to one? Are we seeing those kingdoms move from gold to silver to bronze to iron? You recognize they're changing in value, right? In fact, their value is decreasing, maybe because their morality decreases, but they're not getting better. They're getting worse. And then in the end, what we see is a stone comes from the heavens During the time of the fourth kingdom, a stone comes from the heavens and destroys the kingdoms of men and establishes 
the kingdom of God. So the voice is going to be gone before we're done. I'll give you a nickel, babe, if you go get me some water. I, no hot water. What I really want is a monster. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll take a cold water, be fine. So, so I, want, I just want you to understand that. And then we, then we have, in essence, you have man's view of his kingdoms. which is pretty statue. And then God describes those same kingdoms in Aramaic, right? God describes those same kingdoms. What did he call them in chapter 7? They're all what? They're beasts. One level of beast to another, right? Describing these kingdoms that ultimately lead to Messiah. And then he gave us another clue in Daniel chapter 7. He told us something about a little horn, right? Speaking pompous words, that's going to come up again. We'll see that as we continue through Daniel. <clears throat> now, in Daniel chapter 8, he changes the language to Hebrew. What do you think his focus is on from 8? 8 through the end of the book, it's going to be dealing with the nation of Israel and God's plan for the nation of Israel moving forward. So there's a distinction. You need to remember that. We're challenged as students of the Bible to rightly do what? Rightly divide the word of truth, right? So the author gave us this distinction. I'm not making it up. He wrote those in Aramaic. Now he is writing in Hebrew. And he wants now, from, from 8 on, he's, he's going to tell us about the history of Israel in light of that fits inside of that big picture. They're not separate histories. Right? You guys know that, right? They're in those four kingdoms of the statue during all the history of man. Israel's still here. So we see this as we go on. Now we start this vision in Daniel chapter 8. This is called the, the vision of the ram and the goat. Um, we may or may not finish. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not in too much of a rush. What, what have you brung me? Oh, man. Hot water? Yeah, it'll help with your throat. Yeah, I don't want hot water. That sounds gross. Water tastes bad enough by itself. Make it hot. Maybe if there's coffee in there. Oh, let's see if I can reach the ground. Oh. Oh. You guys know I do everything that's good for me. <laughs> yeah, you guys pray. We'll see what the Lord does. Just so you know, you can't foil God's purposes in your life. All right, so we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to look at this vision of the, of the ram and the goat. Now, this is where non-believing scholars begin to have a big problem with Daniel. Because Daniel chapter 8 and moving forward, especially Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 11, are so, the, the prophecies are so precise that most unbelieving scholars want to say it couldn't have been written before the fact. So you need to recognize that some of the most powerful prophetic passages in the scripture that Daniel gave in regard to the nation of Israel looking in Daniel chapter 8. So he tells us the place in the time of the vision. Let's look. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So we need to understand, first off, Daniel's not laid out chronologically. So one didn't happen before two, didn't happen before three. But what you have here. This one, Daniel chapter 8, and you saw last week, Daniel chapter 7, they go back before chapter 5. 
during the time of Belshazzar, under the Babylonian reign, before the Medo-Persian Empire came in. Okay? So he says, In the third year, the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, he wants to make sure you know who's writing, to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, <laughs> Daniel knew that the critics were going to have a problem with this, so he keeps referring to himself. I was there, me. It's me, Daniel. I saw this vision, me. I was there, okay? He's in the vision transported to Susa. Susa, at the time of Daniel, when Daniel's there with Belshazzar, Susa has little importance. The importance of Susa is not going to come until the Medo-Persian Empire comes. And then Cyrus, he's going to come there and he's going to build the great citadel. Now, for Bible students, you should recognize the name. There are two people who are going to come from there. One of them has an entire book written about herself. Esther comes from Susa. And the other one is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to be sent to rebuild Jerusalem from Susa. So he's transported in a vision to a city that is not all that important at the time of Daniel. But is going to become a, a center of the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 3, he says, I raised my eyes, <clears throat> excuse me, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, if you guys were listening last week, that should sound familiar. Remember the bear? The bear had one side higher than the other, right? Now, here's the beauty of biblical prophecy. It, you don't have to start trying to figure out who anybody is. If you just wait long enough, God will tell you. Yeah, if you wait till we get to verse 20, the Lord is going to tell us exactly what's going on. He says, and I saw the ram charging westward, northward, southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So in this vision he has the same kind of picture that he had of the bear one horn bigger than the other horn it comes up last and when we look at the the history of the medo-persian empire cyrus it begins as a vassal of the medes and then so he's he's basically under command of the medes and then as history moves forward and as the conquest happens, Cyrus rises in greatness until you have what we call the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Cyrus doesn't stop rising. So you have a Mede Empire that moves into a Medo-Persian Empire that becomes the Persian Empire. It's historical. It's exactly what happened. And it's exactly what the Bible is describing. Now this... Medo-Persian Empire, they didn't focus conquering to the east. Interestingly, they conquered uh, westward, northward, and southward. That was the focus of their conquering and 
they became great. In fact, the army of the Persians has a group that is called the Immortals. Now, there's goofy movies that'll tell you that's because they could never die, but that's not true. You know why they called them the Immortals? There was too many. Every time you killed one, another one stood in its place. And another one. In fact, the Persian army boasted an army over one million. In the ancient world, that's a big army. That, that is a big army moving forward. So Persia, they did expand to the east, but their focus was west, north, and south, just like Daniel tells us. And he says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So most of, so you have a ram. You guys have seen rams before, right? So the picture of the ram, they like, like seeing two big horns on their head that are curling. It's got a big beefy neck and you don't want to ram into the ram, right? You, you want to stay away from that. Then you got this billy goat coming. But this billy goat is moving fast. Now he don't have two horns. He's got one horn in the middle. We might call that something else. If it was a horse, we'd call it a unicorn. I don't know what a one horn, what do you call a one horn goat? A unigoat? <laughs> so you have this goat coming. It's moving fast. His feet aren't even touching the ground. That's how fast it's moving. So you got a flying goat that's coming. Now listen. He comes to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank, and he rat, ran at him in powerful wrath. Now, you need to understand this. They are describing extremely bad blood. Do you know from history whether or not there was bad blood between Greece and the Persians? If you remember, in the expansion of the Persian Empire, they made multiple invasions into Greece, multiple invasions. And then Greece had a moment. You remember, it's very similar to the moment we had in the United States. We call it the, the battle for the Alamo. And, and after the battle of the, of the Alamo, we, we got this chant going in the U.S., right? That went like how? Remember the Alamo, right? And people rose up and with great ferocity, we went to war. For Greece, it was, remember, Thermopylae, the battle for the hot gates. When I went to Greece, I did a footsteps of Paul tour, and I had an opportunity to be there, and it's nothing like you would ever picture. <clears throat> the crazy thing about seeing ancient things in this world is you have, Thermopylae used to be at the beach, and now it's like, 10 miles from the beach because of the sediment that has been deposed in the bay over and over again. So it's, it's hard to picture the whole event in your mind. But if you know the story, you know a million-man army came against a 5,000-man army. Yes, I know that's not exactly, doesn't sound as good as the 300. But it was not 300. <laughs> it was 300 Spartans leading 5,000 Greeks. Still against a million 
man army, that's a big deal, right? And they're slaughtered to a man. And Greece begins to, to rally around the cry, remember Thermopylae. And so by the time this fast goat, Alexander the Great, shows up, he has, at the age of 21, what many people call the greatest military mind ever. And he rallies those that, that emotion and all that stuff. And we know what happened with Alexander the Great. What did he do? He conquered the world. Did it take him very long? No. He was moving like a goat. One horn, one leader. And he's going to move in power. And he, with great ferocity is going to destroy the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember the statue? We go from Babylon to the Medo-Persian. What's the third kingdom? Greece. What had happened in history? Just like that. Just like Daniel said. Before it ever came. I saw him close, come close to the ram. He was enraged. <clears throat> and he struck the ram, broke his two horns... And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could save him from his power. Now when you consider that, this movement from the kingdom of Medo-Persia to the kingdom of Greece, and we talk about all the events that took place and the fact that, that Xerxes was poking at Greece and he got Greece all stirred up and then them and their emotion came and they conquered Persia. Do you really think that had anything to do with all those people? The one who tells you about it before it happens is the one who is in control. God is in control of history. This is the point of the book of Daniel. I know we look around us and we're like, oh, Lord, what's going on? Did you go on vacation? No, he didn't. He is the sovereign God. He is in control. He has not left that. And he wants us to know we are to what? Trust him. Trust him. All of history is moving toward a purpose. Amen? All of history is moving. What's the purpose? The purpose has nothing to do with the kingdoms of men. Uh, here's a, here's a bone-crushing statement. The purpose of God has nothing to do with the United States of America. Sorry. <laughs> don't, want to, don't want to ruin your life. The purpose of God has to do with the kingdom of God and the king, which is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. This is where history is moving. And this is the declaration, the beautiful declaration that God is declaring. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back and talk about some of this, maybe a little bit. I don't want to, part. what did you call them, Mark? I don't want to run too far down the rabbit hole. So I'm going to try, try to actually get us where we need to go uh, as we continue. Verse 8, it says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Come on, you guys know history. Alexander the Great conquers the whole world by the time he's 32. In fact, he began to mourn. Oh, there's no more worlds to conquer, right? And in the midst of his strength, the horn 
which biblically is a picture of kings, kingdoms, power. You'll see the exact same thing in the book of Revelation. That's why understanding Daniel, understanding the, the Old Testament prophets is a key to being able to understand and recognize what's going on in, uh, later on as we come into the book of Revelation. So when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. North, south, east, west. Now, this is about the time people will say, well, Alexander didn't have any kids, but that's a problem. Alexander did have kids. He had two. He also had four generals. What chance do you think his kids had? Same thing happened to his kids. It has happened throughout history over and over again. When men want power, what do they do? They take it. And I don't want this guy coming up later and causing me problems, so they killed the children of Alexander, his four generals. And they divided the kingdom of Greece by the four points of heaven. Cassander took Greece, Macedonia kingdom. Lysimachus took Asia Minor. Seleucus took Syria and Babylon. He's going to be known as the king of the north in Daniel 11. And Ptolemy, he took Egypt and Palestine. He's going to be called the king of the south in Daniel 11. Now verse 9 says, now out of one of them comes a little horn. Well, hey, we've heard that before, right? Out of one of them comes a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So this one is going to be focused around Egypt and Palestine, Israel and Cyprus. This is going to come from the king of the south. This is going to come from the Ptolemies. There's a famous guy we're going to talk about when we get to Daniel chapter 11 named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now he's an important character. Not because he is the Antichrist that was spoken of as a little horn in chapter 7. But the language in Daniel chapter 7 was Aramaic, right? The language here is Hebrew. This is going to be a type, a picture. How do I know? Because Jesus is going to use the information from Daniel and he's going to say much later than the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, when you see the abomination that makes desolation spoken of by who? Daniel the prophet. Run. So Jesus is going to refer to it. He's going to refer to that reality that we see then one little horn becomes a picture of the other little horn. If you've listened to the writings of Paul, Paul says, you've heard Antichrist is coming, but I say many Antichrists are here. Why does he say that? You guys know what, it, what the word Antichrist means? It doesn't mean against in Greek. It means instead of. It's like the word pseudo-Christ. It's someone who's trying to stand 
in the place of Jesus Christ. Someone who's declaring themselves to be the Savior. Someone who's declaring themselves to be the Savior of mankind who's going to establish a kingdom and say, come follow me, I'm going to be able to solve all the world's problems. But what did we learn about the kingdoms of men? What do they all do? Are, there, are any of them eternal? Not according to the Bible. This is the picture that the scripture is painting for us. Now as he describes this, we'll talk about him more when we get to Daniel chapter 11, but it's, <coughs> it's a pretty incredible picture. Now listen to what it says, verse 10. It grew great even to the host of heaven. So now we're going to see some bleed over between Antiochus and the, the final picture, okay? So I want you to see this idea that in these visions, we have the kingdoms of men spoken of by a statue, okay? Head of gold, chest of silver, uh, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay, right? You guys see it's all degrading. I don't want us to think in terms of, well, there's only supposed to be four kingdoms, and that's the end of the kingdom of men. No, the kingdom of men are always uh, degrading, and they're always passing, and at the fourth kingdom, the rock from heaven is going to strike the statue. The fourth kingdom was Rome. Who was born during the kingdom of Rome? Who declared himself to be our great God and Savior? Jesus Christ, right? And he has ascended. We saw that last week in chapter 7. He has ascended. He's seated by the Father in heaven. He has taken his throne. Jesus is on the throne now. He will return again. But he is king now. His kingdom is already and not yet. Sometimes we get confused when we read in the Gospels and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God is here. It's in your very midst. Why? Where is the kingdom of God? Wherever Jesus is. At his ascension, he, si he sits on the throne. Who does the Father ever let sit on his throne? Nobody. Did God say he would share his glory with others? No. The incomparable God says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I will not give my glory to another. But he sets Jesus Christ on the throne because Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the Son. And so he sets on the throne. Now, in the Psalm, Psalm 110, he makes this declaration. Today... He says, you are my son. Behold, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Doesn't mean I created you. It is an enthronement psalm. Every king of Israel had that psalm read over him when he became king. Today you are my son. Today I have, I'm, I'm enthroned. God was giving authority for a kingdom to the kings of Israel, in Daniel chapter 7, he's given that authority to his son. One like unto the son of man. You remember? Yeah. And then the father said to the son, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. The father said to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. It's all his. He's the king 
in the throne. But just like the parables that Jesus told, he is away. But there will be a day when the master will return, right? And there will be a reckoning, an establishment of his kingdom, and the glory of being in the presence of our great God and Savior forevermore. Now, we're, we will talk a little bit about the, the rapture, just a little bit about the rapture when we get to Daniel chapter 9. But I want you to understand the focus here is Israel. That's why there's not going to be a lot of discussion about the rapture in Daniel. Because Daniel's not talking to the church. The church doesn't exist. Right? Are you guys tracking with me? But he is talking to the nation of Israel. And he is laying out the plan that God has for them. Now, <clears throat> this nation under this, this little horn is going gonna, gonna to rise up even against the host of heaven. And some of the hosts, some of the stars will be thrown to the ground and it will trample on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? Yahweh Sabaoth. Oh, it doesn't say Yahweh Sabaoth. It says Mashiach Sabaoth, the prince of hosts. So we know that in the, when the Antichrist rises, he's going to have a lot of boasts. You guys remember, right? A lot of boasts, like I'm, I'm even greater than Jesus. In fact, I'm Jesus, come back. This, the, the Bible tells in John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Another will come in his own name, and him they will proclaim. Are you tracking with me? So he's, <clears throat> he's talking about this. He will take away the regular burnt offering and the place of the sanctuary will be overthrown and a host will be given over uh, to it together with the burnt offering, with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Why is all this happening? He says, because of transgression. When God brings things we don't understand, when political climate in our country shifts or changes, here the Lord is saying to Israel, when I do this and I take away the, your opportunity to give an offering and I take away from you the temple, he says why? It's because of transgression. When David writes the 23rd Psalm, when he comes into the valley of the shadow of death, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, we know the words. Do we know what they are? The rod and the staff are tools for discipline and direction. Do you find God's discipline on your life a comfort? This is what David's declaring. Oh Lord, your discipline and your direction. You know how when God changes our direction. I really want to go over there and God says no. You're going that way. I don't want to go over there, God. I've had many of these discussions with the Lord. Many times he says, I, I, don't, I know I didn't ask you. I'm the king. Jackie's not the king. Jesus is the king, right? And he will direct me wheresoever he needs to direct me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Because when you're disciplining me and changing my direction, you're with me. 
right? And God's presence is always a comfort. Well, sometimes he's with me to say, you know what, son? Go pick a switch. Go pick a switch. No, I don't want to go pick a switch. Yeah, boy, go pick a switch. Because the boy needs discipline. And then the Lord, does the Lord discipline from wrath? No, no, he disciplines from love. He disciplines to correct, not to destroy. But the most important thing to God is that your eyes are set on him to finish the race laid out before you, not that you have the nicest car or the biggest house or the biggest bank account. The Lord, he wants you to finish your race. Amen? He wants you to finish your race. That's his focus. That's where his focus is. And so <laughs> the Lord says this is because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. I'll give you more of that history when we get uh, to chapter 11. But in verse 13, he says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evening and mornings, and the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Six years Four months. So in one, one, I want to say 171, um, you're going to have Antiochus remove the rightful priest from the temple and put in just some Yahoo to run things in the temple. From that day to the restoration of the temple under the Maccabean revolt, is going to be six years, four months. 2,300 days, just like God said in the book of Daniel. He goes on and he says, Now when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, <clears throat> there stood uh, before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So what angel is this? Yeah, it's not complicated, is it? Gabriel. So the Lord says, Gabriel, help him understand. One of three angels named in the scripture. So he came near to where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O man, this vision is for the time of the end. This vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell in a deep sleep my face to the ground but he touched me and made me stand and he said behold I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end now I want you to listen the appointed time who appointed it who's in control who is sovereign when we look at Daniel, this is a message of Daniel. God is in control. What if you get thrown to a den of lions? 
God is in control. What if you get thrown into a fiery furnace? God is in control. What if they want you to eat stuff you don't want to eat? God is in control. What if you got to figure out what a dream means or he's going to cut off your head? God is in control. God is in control. God is in control over and over and over. Well, next week when we gather, we'll go through the understanding from <clears throat> Daniel 8, beginning at verse 20. We'll also begin Daniel chapter 9. Hopefully we'll be able to do the prayer in Daniel chapter 9. But I just want you just here, just so you know, Jackie's not crazy making things up. Verse 20, as for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. God said it. I'm just telling you how clear it is historically. Amen? We'll spend some more time on it next week. When we gather, we'll go through that last part of chapter 8 and the beginning part of chapter 9. And as always, um, if you guys have questions or, or anything, you're welcome to talk to me after. If you don't have time, every Monday morning at 7 o'clock, I meet out here in the conference room with whoever comes. And all I do for a couple of hours in that morning is drink coffee and answer questions. So it's not only for men. However, the majority of guys who come are men. But everyone is welcome to come and make use of that time. So just in case you have questions about that, I want to give you opportunity to find what answers I have anyway. Sound good? Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the truth and the power of your word laid out before us that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are able to put our hope, our trust, our faith in your word, God, which declares the end from the beginning. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it is you are doing, what you have accomplished, who you are. And God, we're so thankful for it. Thankful for the ability to, to understand that while we have faith, it's a reasonable faith. While we trust your word, it's a reasonable trust. Because, Lord, just like you declared in Isaiah, <clears throat> you told us the end from the beginning. You have told us history hundreds of years before. You're standing there with Belshazzar speaking to Daniel in the 500s. And the, the Medo-Persian and the Greek empire and the destruction that we're talking about is coming in the 150s. Hundreds of years before the event, you told us. God, in, in Isaiah, I want to say it's Isaiah chapter 45, you gave us the name of Cyrus. That he was going to set your people free from Babylon. Hundreds of years before he was born. The only one who could tell us the end from the beginning is the one who wrote the end and the beginning. God, we're so thankful that you are on the throne. And while we may not always understand the, the things that pass through our lives, God, we know in whom we have believed. And we are convinced you are able to keep us until that day. We trust you, we love you, we believe you, 
We ask, God, you would cause us to grow in our understanding moment by moment, day by day, that we might glorify you as our great God and Savior. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.